Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we will be exploring spiritual mediumship and its investigation. With me is Dr. Julie Beischel, who is the co-founder and director of research at the Windbridge Institute for Applied Research in Human Potential, located in Tucson, Arizona. She is one of the premier investigators in the fields of survival of consciousness and mediumship research. She received her doctorate in pharmacology and toxicology with a minor in microbiology and immunology from the University of Arizona and has published in a number of peer-reviewed journals. Her books include Investigating Mediums, Meaningful Messages, Making the Most of Your Mediumship Reading, and Among the Mediums, A Scientist's Quest for Answers. This is an interview conducted via the Internet, so now I'll switch over to the Skype video. Welcome, Julie. It's a pleasure to, Thank you. to be with you. I've, uh, of course, been aware of your work for, for quite a while. And, and it's interesting to me, you seem to be, you have a single-minded focus on uh, research with mediums, as, as opposed to, you know, so many other uh, avenues of, of research in parapsychology. In fact, I would say that for the last decade, you've been uh, the most active. And, and in fact, I gather you're working full time just researching mediums. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely am. Uh, and I've been doing that for, I think, 15 years now, uh, working full time researching mediums. Um, when we started, uh, my research partner, Mark Bacuzzi and I, when we started the Winbridge Institute in 2008, we, we were interested in all the parapsychology topics. We wanted to study everything. And uh, in uh, 2017, um, we decided we're, we're not, we're serving no one by trying to serve everyone. So we um, created the Winbridge Research Center, which is a nonprofit, and we moved all the afterlife research um, and mediumship to the uh, new Winbridge Research Center mm -hmm. so that now we know. So the Institute still exists, but it is doing um, uh, normalizing, optimizing and utilizing psi functioning. And then the Winbridge Research Center uh, focuses on alleviating suffering around dying death and what comes next. Mm -hmm. Be because I suppose, uh, bottom line, one of the things that you have found is that mediums can be helpful for people who are uh, grieving the loss of a loved one. Um, that's what the, the anecdotal data show. And uh, we did a little bit of survey data, retrospective survey. We asked people to remember, like when, remember how you felt before and after the reading and people did report that it made them feel better. Um, but we still need to collect that data. Uh, the clinical trial data, basically, like where you, you know, people are at, are uh, fill out the questionnaire before the reading and 30 days later. And like, yeah, I have I've, I've uh, 
uh, designed that study. Now we just have to uh, collect all that data. And I'm also interested in other kinds of after-death communication. We refer to mediumship as assisted after-death communication. Mm -hmm. So the medium is the one actually experiencing the communication, and then she shares the messages she receives with you. So we call that assisted. But then uh, there's what's called um, requested so that you can uh, engage in certain practices or using uh, certain uh, technologies or products that can where you're asking your deceased one. Um, so we just released I, this is a plug, a shameless plug. Here it comes. Um, we just uh, I created these uh, meaningful messages. It's a deck of, of cards. And uh, in there are 11 of the, it's 48 cards. 11 of the cards are signs so that you shuffle them and you randomly choose one. And then uh, if you get a science card, like it might say, Today, I'm going to pay attention and look for a feather. And then it gives your deceased uh, loved one an opportunity to try and show you a feather today and then so that you both can can be um, working on mm. that today. So there's things like that where you can request an mm. ABC. I see. I, I presume that most individuals in the population who report uh, some form of communication with a deceased relative or friend or loved one, uh, th that it happens in dreams primarily. That's a, that's a big one. Um, yeah, there's a lot of research actually with what are called spontaneous after death communication experiences. I think the most uh, prevalent one is uh, the sense of presence. Mm -hmm. So just sort of feeling that the person is around. Um, but dreams are a big one too. I mean, there's all kinds of spontaneous after death communication, flickering lights and, um, you know, electronic things. And uh, when you can smell an odor, that a scent that reminds you of the person, oh, like, why would I be smelling cigar smoke? There's no cigar around here. Oh, it's to remind me of my grandfather, things like that. So there's lots of different kinds of ways that people can mm -hmm. have these spontaneous after death communication experiences. Well, from the point of view of a grief counselor, uh, these experiences are undoubtedly very useful. But uh, a grief counselor would not be necessarily interested in uh, what I call the ontological reality of an afterlife. That's more of a research question. And uh, as a researcher, I presume you're really interested in that. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up. I'm not a counselor. My my degree is in uh, the hard sciences, pharmacology and toxicology. But uh, I'm just, uh, we have a paper in under peer review right now, like a uh, with a co-author, I co-authored a paper. Um, she's the first author of a, a grief counselor, mm -hmm. um, an LCSW. And the paper is about a, um, a tool that she developed that clinicians can use to assess clients afterlife beliefs and experiences because nobody's asking their clients about it. And it's, that's a big thing to a lot of people. And it, and it has an effect on your grief as well as your continuing relationships with the people in your life living. So um, we're hoping that this paper, when it comes out, gives uh, grief counselors and other clinicians the tools to be able to bring that into the, mm -hmm. into the client clinician relationship and people can start talking about it because it's really important and it does you know it can affect uh like you said all kinds of things ontologically what ha what's going to happen to me when i die mm -hmm. um and that has so many repercussions of like our decisions that we make about end of life care 
And, um, you know, there's uh, terror management theory um, that people who uh, are scared of their own death will try and push their belief systems on other people so that, well, at least my belief system won't die when I die. Well, if you aren't scared of your own death, if you know that you will continue to live, your consciousness will continue to survive after your death, then maybe you don't feel the need to do that anymore. And so that would socially, that's really important. So yeah, there's a lot of this has far reaching implications, this, mm -hmm. this line of research. Well, I know you've done a number of studies where you're simply looking at uh, the question of whether a medium can come up with accurate information about a, a deceased person. And, and you've shown that they do. They come up with accurate information they couldn't have otherwise known. That's true. Yeah. A, a few years ago, we published our replication study um, where uh, we it was tw readings with 20 different mediums. I think it was 58 readings under uh, various levels of blinding, but at the maximum five levels of blinding, we used to call it quintuple blind, uh, quintuple blind protocol. So five levels of blinding. Um, and that eliminated all the normal explanations for where a medium could be getting her information. So in the protocol, it's just me and a medium on the phone. All we have is the first name of a deceased person. We don't know anything else. I serve as the proxy sitter uh, for the absent sitter. And then I ask the medium specific <laughs> questions about that deceased person. What do they look like? What's their personality? What were their hobbies or activities? What was their cause of death? Did they have any specific messages from for the sitter? And is there anything else you can tell me about that person? So very specific things that you couldn't just know from the name. And uh, so the first question people ask is, well, how does Bob, how does the medium find the right Bob? Well, the, the way that they experience it is that Bob finds them. Mm -hmm. And so they it's a it's an issue we talk about. Uh, it's receive versus retrieve. They it's like picking up a ringing telephone like they they're receiving the communication. They're not they're not out there searching for the answers. Um, and that's really important because people, I think, because of the uh misrepresentation often in the media, people think that the medium can give them whatever they want to hear. Well, they can't. That's, it's like you can't make a person tell you what you want to hear from them. All she can do is listen and, um, and, her, and, and experience the communication, which is usually all five senses. Mm -hmm. They smell things and hear things and, and feel things in their body and see things. And then they just uh, sort of translate that to the sitter, the living person wanting to hear from the dead person. Uh, and so that's, that's all they can do. And, and so what we've showed in the, in the um, replication study was, yeah, the, uh, when a person scores for accuracy, the reading that the medium did, uh, we call it, we do target versus decoy. Mm -hmm. So when the, so the, the sitter scores a target reading where the medium was given the name of their deceased person, and then they score a decoy reading where the medium did a reading for someone else. And they don't, they can't tell which reading is which. And then statistically, what we do is compare the scoring of those two. And we did find people scored target readings statistically significantly higher than they scored control readings. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting is that it's not like 100% versus 0%. There's some, right, people are only so different. There's going to be some things, even in a control reading, in a decoy reading, that are going to fit your person, just because people are only so different. So, uh, but the difference between the scores was statistically significant. So we did demonstrate 
that uh, mediums can report accurate and specific information about the deceased with no prior knowledge, without any feedback during or even after the reading. We don't even tell them how they did afterwards. Um, and without using fraud or deception, there's no way they can look somebody up or uh, anything like that. So that uh, we, we call that phenomenon anomalous information reception. So we've demonstrated anomalous information reception. That they're talking to dead people, we cannot say that. We can just say they've provided this accurate information. That's as far as we can go with that data. Now, I believe I read one of your studies in which, uh, by chance alone, you would expect the uh, sitter to uh, identify the correct reading as opposed to the decoy 50% of the time. And and I think you reported that they were actually correct uh, about 76% of the time. I think, it, yeah, I, well, I wanted to say 74 when you were saying it. I'd have to look. Again, it was a few years ago that we published yeah. that study. Yeah, we do three types of scoring. So the sitters score each item in the, the decoy and the target. They give the whole reading a, a numerical score, and then we say, pick which one is yours. So just a binary force choice. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the data that you're talking about. Yeah, and all three types of those data were statistically significant. Well, a 74% hit rate or anything, in fact, above 60% would be, from a statistical point of view, remarkably significant. And uh, it does strike me that, uh, well, let's take other forms of psi, like remote viewing. I know uh, my friend Marty Rosenblatt has been trying to use remote viewing to predict the stock market and and, uh, also uh, athletic events. He's been doing that for 10 years. Uh, with hundreds and hundreds of trials, and he reports a hit rate of about 60% when you might expect a, a 50% hit rate. So if you're getting 74%, it suggests that something is going on, that there's a stronger connection, uh, a side connection than uh, in the mediumistic context than you have in a normal remote viewing context. Yeah, and we've written about that and of why that that mediumship really serves as a really good example of to do psi experiments, because whatever they're doing at psi, if they're uh, using psi with the living to get the information from the living sitter, that's psi. If they're talking to the dead, that's psi, because they're not using the senses, so it has to be psi. So whatever they're doing is psi. Um, You have this population of people who can do it on demand. Right. We have a team of 20 mediums that we work with. Uh, we have, I guess it's 18 now Two have retired since mm-hmm. we started this work. Um, and uh, the effect sizes are really strong for this. And yeah, it's a really good uh, a way to, to look at Psy and the, just the nature of consciousness. Now, I know there are people who have argued, uh, and I think it's a very interesting argument, that the fact that the mediums seem to score so much higher than, let's say, uh, typical remote viewers uh, suggests that uh, this could be evidential of, of an afterlife, a different, let's call it a different mechanism involved than, than with remote viewing. Um, the, the piece that we like the, the path that we chased was the medium's experiences, the phenomenology. So like, you know, there's these for eons, there's been this survival versus side debate. Is it side with the living or is it survival of consciousness? And, uh, but we, there, then, you know, we wrote papers re, 
define like we made a new term because whatever they're doing is sci. So you can't say sci survival. So we made survival sci and somatic sci. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, it's this. Uh, but if you ask a flippin' medium, they they know what somatic sci feels like, and they know what survival sci feels like, and they're not the same. Mm. And it's much different in modern times than it was when people studied mediums in the 1880s, when the mediums went into a full trance, and they didn't have any conscious experience of the reading. These mediums are fully awake and aware. Um, and so after the reading, you can ask them things about the, uh, their experiences. And so they we published a paper at the end of last year, um, where we did quantitative and qualitative analyses of their descriptions. I think it was, oh, it was over 100 mediums, I think 130 around their mediums. Um, describe your experiences when communicating with the deceased, describe your experiences when uh, uh receiving retrieving information about the like a living sitter a living person during like a psychic reading and the, there there were quantitative and qualitative differences in the way that they described those things so they they can they're very different and we need to if we take people's word for it when we study pain we need to take people's word for it when we study uh their experiences of psi well you mentioned your background in uh pharmacology and uh, toxicology and it would seem to me that a lot of the uh research protocols might be similar because when you administer a new drug to somebody you really want to know their subjective experience Right. There are there are uh, a number of things physiologically that, that the only way that you can study it is to ask the person, how do you feel like depression? There's no like meter for depression. You have to you have to question that person. And yeah, so it, it fits in with that that um, that uh, way of that scientific way of looking at mm -hmm. things. Definitely. Definitely. Now, I know when you look at the various possibilities, you also bring up, I think you call it a, a reservoir of uh, psychic information that it might not be communication with the deceased. It might not be living agent sigh. It might be like tuning into what some people call the Akashic record. The term that we use, somatic psi, it does include that. So we somatic in biology that means soma means body. Mm -hmm. So we use the term because it uh, it includes like the body of the living sit sitter, like if they're just reading it from the living person, and the body of information that exists somewhere mm -hmm. in the universe. So yeah, the akashic record or the psychic reservoir, it's been called previously. Yeah, so that the somatic psi uh, theory. Uh, it, it involves all of those things. Uh -huh. Yeah. But again, the, the phenomenological research shows that the mediums know what that feels like. And that, and they're saying, no, 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 this talking to the deceased is different than that. Mm -hmm. And uh, at one time, uh, you had a program where you were actually certifying mediums. I uh, believe I read recently that you've discontinued that. Yeah, it's been discontinued for years. We, uh, we had received a research grant really early on. Um, to certify, to create a team that we could then use in research going forward. And so the, you know, we, we certified a team and then the grant ended and it's a really time consuming and resource, um, intensive, uh, uh, protocol. It's eight steps. It takes months and months of, uh, the medium's time, the researcher's time. So we don't do it. We, we built a team. We've been working with that team. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but what we do want to do, and so we offer that list of mediums who've been certified. You can go to winbridge.org and that, that list of mediums is, is on the, um, the, the site there. Um, and, you know, people say, well, we, you know, that's, Sitters need it uh, uh, to know if a medium's good. They then your certified mediums that they know that's a that's something that they can sort of depend on. Like you should be testing mediums all the time. Like there's no way we could ever test all the mediums that are out there. Mm-hmm. And so what we're working on at the Wimbridge Research Center is like a like a mm-hmm. bill of rights sort of where mm-hmm. the we're training sitters like we can't test all the mediums, but here's what you can do to know that your medium that you're, um, you know, it's a, it's a contract. It's a professional you're paying. Like it's a contracted position. Um, here's something, here's things that you can do to, uh, make sure that, that you're getting the best medium. We can't make sure you, everybody's Mm -hmm. getting the best medium, but, uh, and we've, we, uh, have, uh, so at the center that, we do rigorous research and then we try and create free educational materials. Mm -hmm. So we do have some fact sheets on the website where it's like tips for sitters, because what we were hearing from our team of mediums was that because of the way mediums are portrayed on TV, sitters were coming to them and getting disappointed because they were thinking that's how it was going to go. And that's not how it works in real life. And there are, they're not a hundred percent accurate and they're, um, and they can't get you what you want that you have to let it, you know, and every medium is different and you have to let her process you have to, you know, and, and it's a three person team, right? The medium is only one person. It, you're involved as a sitter, your deceased person is involved and it's, a, it's communicate, it's human communication. So that always gets messy. So, uh, we created this fact sheet with some tips, some do's and don'ts mm-hmm. for sitters when they're interested in getting a mediumship reading. So at least, um, whoever you go to, whatever medium you go to here, you can be, you can make sure you're, uh, you've optimized your role in the three person process. Well, in the 19th century, of course, spiritualism was a huge fad. Uh, it swept through America, through Europe, through South America. And, uh, at the same time, there were many, many instances of fraud, that that were uncovered and and there was sort of a ritual that went with it you know a seance i i haven't heard you use the word seance once yet so i'm i'm assuming your mediums don't need require seances no i've never been to a a seance with yeah i i don't some of they may do that in their free time um right the only interaction i have with our mediums is is during research studies usually uh, I mean, I've gotten to know them at conferences and that sort of thing, but there are several on our team. I've never even been in the same room mm. with them. Um, all of our research readings take place over the phone. So we don't, uh, we don't need to be in the same place. It's better if we're not in the same place. Um, and so, no, we don't, uh, you know, like <laughs> that word, like when you said it, I was like, oh, methodologically, that's so messy. I say, <laughs> there's so many people and they're so, they're, the environment is so hard to control. Yeah, that's not uh, we're we're empiricists, so that that's a that's a research method that uh, we are not working on right now. Of course, there have been researchers who have endeavored to simulate seances, uh, Bachelor in England, and of course the Philip Group and in, in in Toronto. So uh, it's it's been done, but. Uh, I'm under the impression you're not really looking for table levitations or physical phenomena the way they were. 
That's correct. Yeah, we we don't uh, we don't really study physical mediumship and. You know, I'm big on you have to if you're studying a natural phenomenon, you have to study it as close to the way it exists in nature as you know that you can. And the mediums that we work with don't do seances. They do they do some in-person readings, they do on the phone readings, they do Skype readings. Mm-hmm. Um so we're trying to study what they do the way that they do it. So uh we they do phone readings and that's the that's the easily the uh, it's the most easiest to mm-hmm. blind and to control. So that's the method that we've chosen to do with the, when we do the accuracy yeah. testing. So I, I guess it's fair to say that the, the whole, uh, movement known as spiritualism, and I presume the mediums you work with today would think of themselves as spiritualists. No, they don't. No, we, oh. we use the term secular where they're secular. Most of them are. I think. Uh, there's one on our team that I think it might consider herself a spiritualist, but for the the, the rest of them, uh, we call them secular American mediums. They they don't subscribe to any organized religion or organized belief system. So th- no, they just it's a it's a talent, it's an ability that they have, and they they do the readings. And mm-hmm. they you know they there may be uh, there's a sort of uh, overview spiritual they may have a you know some spiritual beliefs in uh common but not any organized religion no i'm glad you asked me that i'm glad yeah. we cleared that up well i i guess it's fair to say that the the idea of secular spirituality is relatively recent it's it's been yeah. a big movement i think over the last 30 years maybe 40 years but back in the 19th century when spiritualism was a huge movement uh secular spirituality was probably rarely if ever discussed that's true that's really true yeah yeah there's a lot of so again you know you have to study the phenomena as it exists in nature and it is as it exists in time right Mm -hmm. as it's existing now like even 50 years ago it was different and um and yeah so we have to we have to follow the way that the that the trends are going, mm-hmm. even in research. Yeah. Well, when, when you uh, are selecting mediums to work with in your research studies, do you have particular criteria how, other than somebody's self-identification as a medium? Well, we have this. Uh, the all the mediums on our team are we certified. It was this eight-step certification procedure, and so they were interviewed. Um, they did test readings under blinded conditions, so we did test their abilities. Um, and uh, but they did interviews and tests and training, like they um, so that they understood. We actually made them uh, uh, learn about the. Um, human research subjects ethics uh-huh. because they themselves are human research subjects oh, yeah. and the sitters that they are providing the readings for are as well. So they're, uh, yeah, we, they're certified research mediums. We we're clear about that. We're not certifying mediums just like, yep, that's a good medium. No, that's a good research medium. So they understand they ring in on protocol design. Like if I have an idea that I would, can go to them and say, I'm thinking about doing this. Could you do that? And they go, I couldn't really do that but maybe if it was like this. So they're, they're ringing in on um, protocol design. They understand the need for blinding. They, they understand the need that we're not going to give them feedback about how they did. You know, they're just as interested. They're scientifically minded and they're just as interested in the results as we are. Um, I'm under the impression you treat them as partners in your research rather than as subjects. 
That's true. Yes, definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah, co-researchers. I think in some yeah. areas they call it that. Yeah. So you're getting away from the sort of this colonial model of uh, the. Do you mean patriarchal? Yes. <laughs> yes the lofty researcher and the the lowly research subjects who are yeah. b- uh, prone to all sorts of delusions. Right. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, how can I think that I know more about mediumship than they do? Yeah, I have to, you know, they have to be involved in the in the designing of this. Uh, uh, again, because they're not because they're they're aware versus mm-hmm. um, historically when the mediums were in trance um, and they didn't re- they didn't really know what was going on during a reading. These mediums do know, so yeah, we have to get their impression. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, some of the most interesting uh, studies that you've done and uh, other researchers have done as as well has to do with the physiology of, of the medium. And uh, actually, I'm only aware I've only I think read one of your studies that dealt with physiology, but I think it's quite unusual uh, that there may well be physiological components uh, that distinguish when a medium is actually uh, in contact with uh, a deceased individual. Uh, Yeah, we have a paper that's just about to come out. Uh, We only did uh, this. I think this is a first real physiology study. So what we did was uh, we had five mediums uh, come to a doctor's office and do a phone reading, and we took their blood before and after the reading, and we took their blood before and after a control situation where no dead people were contacted. And uh, we took so much blood, and we paid for so many blood tests, and uh, and we took just basic physiology measures to heart rate, blood pressure, those kind of things. And we found no difference. Mm. So there was no, there's no immediate stressor on the body to these veteran mediums, right? They've been doing this forever. Um, and so then my conclusion was, and, but if you, why I wanted to look at that was, um, they, like just the mediums on our team, they have a high rate of autoimmune diseases. And so we did a separate study, a survey study where we asked, uh, mediums and non-mediums, uh, that was just self-reported, mm-hmm. uh, mediums and non-mediums, um, of uh, their health issues and history and that sort of thing. And we did find a statistically significantly higher disease burden uh, of the mediums, people who self-identify as mediums. So then that was a little incongruous because if they're having more disease and they're mediums, then it should be the mediumship that caused the disease, but it isn't. But they also score really high, high, statistically higher on uh, measures of uh, childhood trauma and abuse, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which has been very well uh, in just the mainstream, not medium, just in people in general. That's been very well um, correlated to disease in adulthood, is childhood trauma. So my the, the uh, where I have landed, my conclusion is that it's not mediumship that causes disease. It's trauma, childhood experiences that cause disease in mediums. And perhaps it, that same thing, those same experiences in childhood cause mediumship too. Well, I know oh. there are, are studies pointing out that people who report above average amounts of spontaneous psychic experiences also report a, a higher degree of childhood trauma. Yeah, that's been uh, various researchers' conclusions as well. So yeah, yeah. that's I think that that's my... 
um, in my, you know, PowerPoint slide. That's my uh, me, it, trauma causes mediumship and disease. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And spontaneous psychic functioning. Yeah, uh-huh. definitely. Well, which is a lot of how the mediums um, first, you know, when they, mm-hmm. they had a first experience um, and uh, that we had a, we uh, at the center, we publish a, a open access peer reviewed journal um, called threshold. And we had a paper come out earlier this year uh, in threshold by an author who looked at uh mediums reports of their very first experiences Mm -hmm. and so yeah that you would can that those are spontaneous experiences when you saw your deceased grandmother at the foot of your bed right so uh that that tracks as well Mm -hmm. if you if you consider mediumship it it also started as a spontaneous psychic experience at some point well i do recall reading a, a study you were not the first author but you were one of the authors of this study i'm pretty sure it was on your website about electrocortical uh, activity in uh, mediums associated with uh particular uh, items they came up with if i remember correctly yeah, that were identified by the sitter as being accurate um yeah it's really Yes, that we did do that study with Winbridge mediums. Um, and it's EE, it was EEG study. And EEG is really difficult with mediumship because mediumship is talking. Yeah. Right. And you can't collect EEG data while the subject is talking because of, uh, jaw muscle artifacts. Yeah. So in that study, we had to, I had to ask the question and then I had to say 20 seconds and the medium had to be quiet. While she received it, it was very, very disruptive to the medium. So we did see significant results and there were correlations, but I don't think that was looking at mediumship really mm-hmm. because it was this very, very disruptive process. Mm-hmm. So we're uh, moving forward in the direction of functional MRI where you can talk. Um, and because the mediums stay awake, um, we can put them in the MRI tube and collect uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging uh, data from them while they do a reading and mm-hmm. while they do a psychic reading for the living. And so we're we're uh, we're we're headed in that direction. That's all I can say right now. Oh, okay. Well, that's, a, <laughs> stay that's tuned. the possibilities are, are interesting. Shall we shall we say Um uh, I know that there have been studies of um, people who have dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder where their physiology will change as their personality changes. Sometimes even the color of the eyes change. Um, do you, have you noticed anything like that in your work with the mediums? Does, does it resemble at all a, a, a dissociative identity disorder? Um, I think those studies are fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like one personality can be diabetic and one isn't. Oh, that's just so fascinating. Of the the mind's control over the body. I'm just so fascinated by that. Yeah. Um, the the research that we do with the with our mediums is very c- controlled and in very specific situations. Like I'm not, you know, I don't live with them. I don't yeah. know what their life is like. So they do the readings and the very, you know, the quintuple blind protocol. And we ask them the phenomenology questions and they fill out the questionnaires. So um, it doesn't, uh, I don't think so. I don't like mm-hmm. I, they, it, 
they're not experiencing those dead people as themselves. No. It's really, it's very, it's a, it's a separate volitional consciousness is the mm-hmm. way that they experience it and the way that they describe it. So they're not identifying. That was my first, when I knew, when I just, uh, uh, in talking to them, I realized a lot of them had autoimmune diseases and that's what got that direction of research going. And, but that was my first thought was, Oh, experiencing the cause of death of all these people regularly does your body get confused of what's you and what's not you Mm -hmm. and is that why there are autoimmune diseases but it doesn't look like that's what it is it looks like it's the trauma piece but that is the the direction that i that i started down but they don't Mm -hmm. they always know that the thing is different like that the experience Mm -hmm. is about a different person i don't think they identify i think maybe where it gets muddy is like when your brain is trying to uh interrupt and be like maybe it's this like no just shush brain and let the dead person talk but other than that i don't think there's any confusion between what's the dead person and what's the medium and and i know i've talked to researchers who study dissociative identity disorder and uh, i've asked them the same question could could this be uh, related to mediumship, and they all say no. Okay. As, as Good. So we're on the same. Page. Yeah, okay. you're you're on the same page uh, with them. But I, yeah, I'm still curious about it. Here's here's another question for you. These days, a very popular term uh, I hear a lot is channeling, uh, which is akin to mediumship, but it doesn't necessarily involve deceased individuals, although it could. It, people often channel, you know, spirit guides. Uh, and uh, entities from ancient times and 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 the like uh, is that at all related to uh, the mediums that you work with um yeah the sort of the way that i learned it was yeah channeling isn't necessarily dead people it can be like you said uh these other uh entities but mediumship is dead humans mm-hmm. or animals mm-hmm. like that's a that's a direction of our research too um and, you know, with a lot of this stuff, the language can be problematic. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we specifically study mediumship mm-hmm. with deceased people who because the information is is verifiable. Yeah. Um, and you can I don't know uh, you, you know, what <clears throat> aliens or angels. I can't verify that stuff. So that as empiricists, that's not a direction that we've gone down. Um, so I don't, and again, I don't live with the mediums, so I don't know if they do channeling, um, in their, in their individual practices. Um, it's not something that we've looked at in our research. I can see. Well, I know in the 19th century, uh, when you say you don't live with the medium, uh, some of the researchers back then, such as William James, uh, spent a lot of time with just one medium. William James studied Mrs. Piper Mm -hmm. for, for years, maybe for decades, uh, as, as far as I know. And he did, I presume, get to know her extremely well as, as a person and was able to make all sorts of subjective judgments about her her mediumship uh i guess that's not the approach you're much more of an experimentalist um that is my strength that Mm -hmm. is my training um but i am a person (laughs) and so i do spend some time on the phone with them i you know i i have uh attended conferences uh 
I know of one. I attended a conference uh, with a, a medium was there too. She did a talk and I did a talk. And uh, I did spend the night uh, in her home while we went to that conference. So um, I, uh, I don't try and like, you know, uh, Charlie Tart talks about state-specific sciences. Yes. And so I do, and people would ask me that, oh, well, are you a medium? And I used to say, I'm not, and I don't want to be, because that would prevent me from being objective about, you know, like if they told me about their phenomenological experiences, and I was like, well, that's not the way I experience it. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be, um, I didn't want to bias myself in hearing what they had to say. Um, but I do think that, uh, not trying to hold them at arm's length is also useful because there are a lot of things. Like I said, how would I know about the autoimmune diseases if I didn't, if I wasn't like um, talking with them? And and I, you know, that that where would that have come up with during a quintuple blind reading? It wouldn't have. So I do need to to treat them like people and get yeah. to know them. Um, and and so I do. Th- it's a I don't want to, again, I don't want to become a medium because I feel like that would bias me, but I do want to treat them as people and, again, co-researchers, part of yeah. the team, and to mm-hmm. get to know these. Uh, yeah, I have great um, aspirations that I want to block out time uh, in my in my month that, like, get one of them on the phone once a week and just let's just talk for a half hour, an hour, mm-hmm. and just see where it goes and see what that uh where that goes, if that comes up with new research ideas, that's the, um, but I have yet to figure out how to schedule that into my life. So I haven't done that yet, but it's my plan at some point. Well, I think one of the most interesting studies I'd ever heard of involving a medium uh, was the famous case of the chess game from the dead, uh, where uh, the goal was to see not only could the medium provide information about a deceased person, but could the medium actually exhibit some sort of skill, in this case, chess mastery that uh, a deceased person would have had. Have you explored anything along those lines? No, uh, we haven't. I've written about that. There have historically, a lot of people have been like, well, you know, what would really prove mediumship. And then they have some idea. And it usually is based on a lot of assumptions that are not true. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of it is you don't know what it's like to be dead. And so that person, that chess master, he was able to to convey that to that medium. Yeah. You, we don't know about other skill sets. Um, there's this really great book called um, Stroke of Insight, and a physician wrote it. Uh, and she had a stroke, and she uh, oh, knew yes. what that was doing. She yeah. knew what was happening, and she like she talks about trying to dial 911 and she knew what the phone was and she knew she needed to use it to get help, but she didn't know what the numbers were. Mm. And, and uh, my husband, Mark, he's like, I bet that's what it's like to be dead. I bet that can give us some insight in when your consciousness is kind of, you know, not really tied to your body Mm -hmm. too well anymore. Um, And so I think there's a lot of, uh, other ways that we uh, can demonstrate survival or, or see, you know, what can the deceased tell us and that sort of thing. But I don't think these, oh, it, here's a code or, you know, here's a riddle. Like, we, you don't know, you know, no. can you tell me your combination to your high school locker right now? No. So, like, these assumptions of what you can convey to a medium and what a medium can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in the process. So we don't try and do those kind of things. Again, we study it like it happens. Yeah. Um, so if that's if we were observing that that oh this dead person wants to play chess, then we would study that. I but see. I haven't. That's not. That's not what the dead want to do. The dead want to tell you that they're okay, that they're still with you, that they still love you, and uh, that you're. They like the color you painted the kitchen, and that they have the mm-hmm. dog with them, hmm. and that you. You know, that's what dead people want to do. They don't want to. They don't want to play your games or, or answer your riddles. So we don't. We don't really follow. Them. Well, as, as I recall, in that case, the medium and as, as many mediums uh, have been reported had like a, a guide or a, a, mm-hmm. a, one guide, and, and in this instance, with the uh, somebody came up with the idea, wouldn't it be great? Yes, if we could contact a, a chess master. And so the question was posed to the guide of the medium. And, and, you know, basically, could you find us a chess master who would be willing to come through? And the guide said, sure, I'll, I'll see what's possible. And sure enough, there was a, a deceased chess master who was willing to play along. Okay. Yeah. So, so my question, next question is, do you, do you find that the mediums you work with have guides? Yeah, that's, um, and in that, study that I told you about that was just published with about the medium's initial experiences. Yeah. Some of them and their initial experiences was with spirit guides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not something that we've looked at. Um, but again, in just talking to them, I've heard that, that yeah, they do. I, uh, I think of them and refer to them as bouncers. Um, that that's sort of uh, one of their functions. I that the, that's the way the mediums have described it is that they keep out the riffraff, mm-hmm. and they and especially in our research, they make sure the right person that who we want to hear from during this reading today that that's the person that gets through, and that there aren't. Yeah, we we uh, I know it's uh, historically uh, evidential, but we uh, try not to have drop-ins. Mm-hmm. We do not want drop-ins, so we we specifically. Um, uh, request that the sitter we ask that when we're um, recruiting sitters do you think that anyone else you know would want to come and barge into this you know like no no i think my mom is going to be quiet while my dad talks and Mm -hmm. so we we're we're really trying to optimize the process um to get the 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 one deceased person well it it does sound like what you mentioned to me earlier that you consider a three-person team the deceased person the medium and the sitter but mm-hmm. it's possible that the guide is also a fourth entity in oh that. definitely and yeah. maybe those maybe the spitter the sitter has spirit guides too and they're helping yeah yeah we you know we don't know how any of this works to be mm-hmm. honest <laughs> well you're certainly paving a lot of uh, new ground because uh, uh very few people, if any, today are doing the kind of intensive work you're doing with mediums. I'm, I'm just not aware of it, although I guess it's fair to say that there's an explosion of uh, people in, who call themselves paranormal researchers and go out to visit haunted houses. And I'm under the impression many of them try to recruit mediums to come along with them to visit haunted houses. So there's a, a huge, I guess you'd have to call it an, uh, an army of amateur researchers looking into this sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, that, that's, uh, my husband, that's his forte. Uh, he did, uh, 
uh, field investigations of allegedly haunted locations. And um, he had really strict protocols where, uh, you know, there's sound recordings that they often collect where his protocol was they would turn the recorder on and ask for uh, communication. And then everybody in the room would have a clock and a, a timer and be track writing down oh, a truck drove by right then. And oh, this, so that it was when you went back to the tape and there's an anomalous sound, oh, that was when the truck drove by. Mm -hmm. And so he had this very, very um, carefully uh, organized uh, investigation protocol. And uh, I don't think he used a medium specifically, but you know, like that's, uh, that's, it's very difficult. Like I saw on TV, um, they brought a medium to like an Italian restaurant in New York City, and they're like, oh, maybe something happened here. Really? Even I know that's going to be a mafia hit you're asking about. <laughs> so there, it's really hard to control for, yeah. you know, there's it's people and people have been in the world. And like, it's really hard to control for um, what you already know or what you could just sort of glean. So that's, yeah, I'm, I'm much more comfortable in my lab with my protocol where they can't know anything about George who's somewhere and is somebody's husband and there's no information that they could get and let's talk to George and see what he has to say to his wife and see, you know, how that makes her feel. Mm -hmm. That's really my, uh, my interest. Well, Julie, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I have to commend you on, on the work that you're doing and also, uh, your entrepreneurial spirit to really you know, set up your own institute and arrange for your own funding and to keep it going uh, as you have for over a decade now. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. I, I really enjoyed it. It's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, hopefully we'll have opportunities to do more interviews in the future. I'd enjoy that. Sounds good. 